360 Ed TV is brought to you by Rice Studios and Agility. Today we have Beverly Oliver, she's the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Education at Deakin University. Uh, we're sitting in her office in one of the, the newer uh, buildings here on campus at Burwood. Beverly, thank you for your time. Uh, beautiful campus. And I have to say, um, to my mind, the transformation of Deakin has been um, quite, uh, quite unique, particularly over the last three years as you've um, thought about the development and embedding of digital assets, physical properties, uh, and the redefining of your digital business initiatives. Um, I think there's a unifying brand strength that comes from being able to articulate a strong message around things like smart campus, um, cloud campus, the implementation of technology and marketplaces that you've put together um, with Watson, FutureLearn and Deacon Talent. And I think the business history and experience you've built up uh, that's culminated in Deacon Co are particularly strong players. Steve Jobs said, and I'll quote him here, you have to start with the customer experience work backwards to the technology. How has Deacon focused on the customer and student experience in a way that's fundamentally set you apart from the competition? What's been the thinking behind that? Well, I'm not sure if it sets us apart from the competition. We'd like to think so, but let's leave that aside for the moment. So. Yep. I guess our starting point, you know, six years ago was to launch our Live the Future agenda, which is our strategic agenda. And it really all comes down to some very core catchphrases, mm. which we actually crafted ourselves. No one crafted them for us. We, we agreed that what we wanted to do was offer students a brilliant education where they were and where they wanted to go. So that's your Steve Jobs quote in educational language really and we wanted to prepare them for the jobs and skills of the future we wanted to do it by uh, going to the digital frontier and we wanted to do research that made a difference that makes a difference to the communities we serve mm. so in a nutshell that's been our mantra for the last six year six years so that's the guiding path if you like so if you go back to education, a brilliant education, where you are and where you want to go. What we've done over the years is iterate that. So we've got our big strategic agenda. But now, for example, uh, you know, I could have, as the DVC education, had the job of writing a teaching and learning plan, which is pretty standard. Very standard. Yeah, yeah. we don't have one of those. Hmm. We decided not to call it that. We decided to call it our student learning and experience plan. And it is to deliver that byline which is the brilliant education, jobs and skills of the future. So very much, what are the jobs and skills of the future? Because they are changing before our eyes. We are in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, as people are calling it. We are, everything's going digital very quickly, mm. including our own industry. So how do we use the new tools we have to solve the new problems we have? So we're trying to get opportunity to meet challenge if you like. So I guess fundamentally that's what we've tried to do is to section all the parts of the student journey. So we've got, you know, just off the top of my head in our student learning and experience plan, we have the five main 
stages, if you like, of the mm. where students are. Um, they choose Deakin, they get started, they, t they learn and achieve, they feel safe and supported, and they get jobs and, and feel connected to the university. Now, they don't get jobs just at the end, and they don't get jobs because they've never had a job before. So what we're doing is constantly thinking of who are our students. You mentioned our campuses, we have five. And we know that every campus is a bit different. Mm. If we think of the Burwood campus, which is our largest, it would be fair to say th that is predominantly the place where our school leaver undergraduates, our international undergraduates, and our postgraduate students, including internationals, come on campus. But they still have a very rich digital experience, so it's very blended. Mm. Our second largest and fastest growing campus is the cloud campus. So by declaring that a campus, which is kind of, you know, that metaphor breaks down at some point because it's not actually a field, but it is a cohort. So we now embrace that cohort. We know who those people are. They are typically not your school leaver. They are postgrad, undergrad, mature age learners who are who have significant family caring work responsibilities or all of the above and they have different needs. Mm. So what we try and do is look at those five stage staging posts, if you like, of the student journey, but look at them through the lens of each cohort because they all need something different. There's no kind of one size fits all here. I think that's really important. I so often hear uh, people talk about students and they uh, and their language slips a little bit and they say, you know, so these kids, you know, I go, no, hang on, these kids are 35, they're, they're 45. Students in the university are at all stages and they may be 45 in a postgrad and they may be 45 in an undergrad or they may be somewhere in between because I think that's where we're, we're having the whole panoply of credentials and qualifications along that journey. So. Wherever we are post-school education, we will want to invest in credentials that are signs and signals that take us on the ne next step of wherever we're going because if we're true to the lifelong learning piece, it will be, what's my next, mm. you know, what's going to advance my career or life goals, and I think the second part is very important, on the next bit. So it's about, to go back to your jobs quote, it's about recognising who a student really is and what their motivation really is and what they want to happen as they go through that journey over and over and over again. They don't go through once and they're done. Those days are gone. So that's a complex, that's a long answer to it, a short it question. Is, Sorry. It is. No, no, not at all. You've called out the complexity mm. of so many dimensions about what the university does and the way in which it needs to respond to a complex weave and tapestry of students mm. coming at different life points. Where do you look to maintain that focus, to take learnings, to keep yourself sharp in terms of how you look forward? Are there particular people that you look to or pieces that conceptually are useful to you? Well, uh, like everyone else, like my peers, uh, I try to, to keep focused on, to see what other people are doing, but to stay in touch with what a student would want. Um, I've been online shopping for my next <laughs> degree. Uh, I just completed a, a qualification earlier in the year in the, the company director's course, and that was a chance for me to be 
back in the mm -hmm. learner seat, doing a lot of online learning, feeling what that was like, being assessed, feeling what that was like. And I also have you know, hobbies and interests that I um, follow up all the time as well. So I think we, are, we have to put ourselves in that seat, but, we, but if we look at the people around us and the students that we have as well, our staff, um, we are all typically potential students. Many of us these days also learn for free. There is the whole MOOC piece, you know, and who, who does a MOOC is a very different, and the motivation for doing that is a very different thing from paying money for something. So what's the difference between those two things? So I guess that's what I do is keep focused on thinking about where do people want to go next in their lives, including myself, and, and what would I be willing to engage in? What would entice me? Mm. Um, even to, to do something for free, but to, to get a credential which I pay for, what would be the thing that would drive me? So I, I guess I focus on the motivation piece, but I also like to, to read voraciously, to watch what other people are talking about, what other people are trying, because I think, I know we've tried a lot of things at Deakin. Many, many people are trying things. Mm -hmm. um, we, none of us has have the answers, I don't think. I certainly don't think we do. We've got some answers. Uh, at the end of the day, I know there's a lot of competition between providers as well, but you know, I think in the bigger picture, to have an educated nation is, is the safest way forward for everyone. So we're not just trying to outdo each other like supermarkets here, we're trying to do nation building, I think, in the best sense of that word. So I think that's, it's also a much higher calling than just um, trying to outdo peers and things mm. like that. So I think we all learn from each other. Mm. Look, I absolutely agree when I speak to many of your peers like David Sattler and Denise Kirkpatrick, um, the, the collegial dimension mm. to the conversation is always so honestly felt with them. Um, the role that universities, the higher ed sector plays as an engine for economic growth within Australia is, should be unchallenged mm. and we should really be mm. looking to, to do all that we can from a policy perspective, from a support perspective, to ensure that they thrive because ultimately Australia thrives as well. Mm. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, your work around credentialing and uh, uh, your 2016 paper, uh, Better 21st Century Credentials. As I look at it, it's almost like a state of play and the 19 case studies are a really good snapshot of companies trying to solve complex problems, mm. typically that are part of the mix that universities mm. need to, uh, mm. to, um, to solve. It's succinct, I think it's a really important commentary. Um, what drove you to write it? Was there an unmet need? Or, yeah? yeah, I got interested in digital badges, actually. Mm. Um, because I could see that they had some potential. And, and this is something you've been, I mean, we talked about this probably four or five years ago yeah. from the credentialing piece. Yeah, so badges have been on your mind. Yeah, you know, if you had a different signifier, a digital signifier mm. that could warrant a different kind of learning achievement, yep. what, how would that work out? And uh, in that particular report, I remember writing and heading up a small paragraph in the beginning saying, from digital badges to the big end of town. Yes, that's where you're heading. Yeah. 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 And I meant there, you know, the, the, the digital invention, the token that you can give someone is, is just the signifier. This can be way more important. So really, 
I don't talk about badges anymore because to me that's the actual bit of technology, the badging technology. Uh, and I also know in my conversations with people around the sector and, and in universities particularly, the word badges just leaves people cold. Mm. Because, you know, when you think about it, a degree is a badge. It's just a huge badge, mm. that's all. So let's stop using the word badge. So I started using the words macro credentials to signify the big degrees, the traditional ones, and micro, meaning the smaller ones that could add, add up yeah. and so on. So I got much more provoked into thinking about the value of what's under the, the credential, if you mm. like. And, and what drove me to come up with that title was really, apart from just uh, making a faster horse, if I go back to jobs, you know, what's the point of having a better signifier if what's under it is still as murky? Mm. Because a big macro credential like a degree is a murky collection. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. It's a whole great conglomeration of pieces of assessment that a student went through at various times, ages, you know, they may have had a break. How does that all hang together? And mm. I think we would like to think that it does hang together, but we also know that a degree is often the collective experience of a whole pile of units that somebody did over the course of their journey through the student life cycle and you know a degree is not the same as any other degree in the sense that some are highly structured and accredited some are extremely fluid and and open mm. so how do we actually make better sense because there's a, a rising hum tony i hear about questioning the value of the macro credential yep. undergraduate but particularly postgraduate mm. uh, the things that we might have thought would be were terrific a few years ago, people are starting to go, well, what's the return on investment to, to use the business jargon? Why should I do this postgraduate? It cost me so much money. Will it actually give me any advantage? And who can see under the hood? I guess the key question, and it came out of work on graduate capabilities that I did as part of my national fellowship is, at the end of the day, if I've got a new signifier, micro macro credential, does it really indicate, does it, does it help say on the tin what I can do, mm. right? So it, it, the fundamental issue we have is adding up marks and grades to get a thing. And what's lost in the noise is, can you really work in a team? Do you really know the knowledge that you need? How do we know? Or was it just the way you scrabbled the marks together to get past the pass marks? So these are some of the fundamental assessment yeah. problems. So that's where I was trying to go with that piece. Mm. And I think the 19 case studies were things that happened at the moment. They're got past history now. Mm. But what I was trying to focus on is more the front of the, the piece at the front, which tries to say, if we're going to get different, smaller, you know, more agile credentials, let's hope we get better ones than the ones we had before. They weren't broken but let's improve what's in the body of the credential, not just the signifier. Mm. I think the way that you, and, and you had a summary, <coughs> excuse me, a summary table there that I thought mm. was really interesting, where you actually drew out a very, I think, salient distinction between verification and then the credential itself. Mm. Uh, so I think that that kind of gets lost in the, in the, the conversation a little bit. Um, and then what is the actual credential that you're getting, whether it's hard baked into a, mm. a badge or whatever, but, um, I look at companies, I guess the rise of companies in the US in particular like General Assembly, mm. and they seem to have 
digital skills components that mm. they would contend lead mm. to mm. high employment rates. Yep. And in a market, in an economy that is struggling to, to, towards full employment, mm. um, like the US, it's very attractive. Um, I know that they're not tracking quite so well here in Australia. Um, have you used that, that work that you did more broadly within Deakin to help kind of refocus or reframe mm. the conversations you're having? Mm, definitely. So what we're doing is um, at the same time as we continue to offer macro credentials mm. using the system marks and grades and credits because that is the way the sector works. You can't just ditch that. It would throw the whole university into chaos. But what we're trying to do is keep that and then grow alongside other forms of credentialing and, and really testing our minds. In fact, um, an example is to have a new macro credential, Masters of Professional Practice, which is made up of traditional units, marks mm. and grades, clustered with micro credentials where we don't teach you, we simply assess you. It's a little bit like, not exactly like, but it's a little bit like an advanced form of credit for prior learning, which is, I think, something that we, the sector, do not do that well, mm. um, probably not done across the world very well. There are large, very large initiatives in the United States, for example, I was looking at them last week, Credential Engine, Connecting Credentials, Lumina yep. Foundation, because how, how do you get these things to make sense against each other? And in a global world, if you come with a, even a degree from an American or Western European university or China, wherever, how do I make sense out of that when you come to me? Mm. And, and I think, Tony, the, the thing that we haven't really grasped yet is you're not coming physically. When you come to me digitally, because education is going to be a global digital business where I need to be able to read and understand what it is that you have achieved in your mm. previous institution, if that's what it was, including General Assembly and others, yep. make sense of it and give you some kind of warrant Yes, you've achieved this. So it's all part of trying to work that complex problem out. Mm. It's a very knotty problem. It is. There are so many components to it. Um, when we talk about the complexity of that, I'm also interested in the way in which universities are looking to engage around accelerator and innovation spaces mm. in areas like entrepreneurship. And uh, I caught up with uh, Simon Han a couple of weeks ago, CEO of, of Deakin Co. Um, it was an edge growth. Mm. event and um, I had a chance to sit down and speak with and interview uh, all of the um, uh, the presenters that mm. night and there's some really interesting uh, platforms and initiatives that they were that they were looking to uh, to bring to market um, most unis have some kind of incubator or accelerator program on campus but the edge growth one for me as I was speaking to, to Riley Batchelor um, mm. was the mix of founding partners in the edge of growth space. You've mm. got um, uh, Deakin and Griffith, Latrobe, Charles Sturt, Monash and Navitas. Mm. So there's this interesting mix of different universities and a for-profit for in there. Mm. Um, what was the thinking behind um, travelling down this collaborative path? Well, first of all, uh, it started when um, I, I went to, a, I was invited to an Austrade event where it was actually about international education. This mm. harks back to what I just said about, we have this enormous international education industry. Mm. 
But what, if, what happens when we want to go digital? So what is the future international education, I guess, the global play? And I heard uh, some of the people that you mentioned and others in the room who were edupreneurs, that's how they would describe themselves, and they explained how difficult it was to connect with universities, mm -hmm. particularly people in roles like mine. You know, they said, we don't know what door to knock on. If we knock on yours, we get sent off to the CIO or the DVC research or whatever. And I just thought, okay, we are trying to innovate all the time ourselves as an educational scaled business. We have known issues and challenges right across the sector. I could mention plagiarism, academic integrity, yep. you know, English language skills, all the things that we worry about. All these people are trying to knock on a door with a clever solution and make a new business out of solving the problem. So why don't we try and get people like me and similar universities and entities into a forum where they can meet people who want to build solutions to problems rather than trying to knock on the door and show me a shiny new app that's really not solving any problem yeah. or solving yesterday's problem that's no longer a problem. Why don't we actually have a forum? That's how it started. So uh, Patrick Brothers from Navitas and I particularly formed this group and then went and found the other partners and we're still interested in finding other partners who want to join that conversation and almost link tomorrow's solutions, mm. not just with today's problems, but you know, as you and I have discussed, how do we keep innovating and turning ourselves into tomorrow's businesses as well? Mm. Um, you know, some would say universities may not be around forevermore, whatever. I think there will be credentialing businesses that will be around and I think universities will be part of that mix. But so it was about that and so I guess I'd like to think that people who could understand that vision in the partner universities and Navitas decided that was worth investing in, and so we did. Mm. And so uh, EduGrowth's been going for a year now, easily, and I think you saw some of the fruits of the labour. I did. And I think there's a lot more to come. Um, as, we, as we grow the exposure of the people with the new ideas meeting the people with the new problems or the old problems, so it's about getting innovators to meet innovators. Mm. Really, um, I, I can't speak um, uh, highly enough of the work that those uh, young entrepreneurs brought, and I use the term young. Uh, one fellow, had, uh, he was on his third business, uh, and he was 22. Mm. And the enthusiasm, uh, but also the laser-like focus around understanding the problem they were looking to solve, mm. that was a real eye-opener for me. Mm. Probably at this point, it's worth looking at what you've been doing with FutureLearn. Uh, you're looking to release, I think it's six postgrad um, programs um, over this year. Um, you look at the focus of those, uh, and they're in cybersecurity, um, development, humanitarian action, a whole variety of really interesting areas. My thought as I was looking through the list was, was there a specific thought around not cannibalizing on campus content, or was it about uh, taking, a, I guess, a stride into areas that were of particular interest and focus that you thought were evolving. Um, were they considerations or? It was a difficult choice, tell you the truth, yeah. Tony. So a year ago, nearly, we announced that we went into a partnership with FutureLearn. What we saw were, and this goes back to the credentials piece, mm. uh, 
the MOOC platforms, Coursera, edX, FutureLearn, were starting to go into, you know, nano degrees, micro masters, which are not really credentials as far as the Australian qualifications framework mm. goes. They're a bit of one. And so we, we did our own MOOC a few years ago. We learned a lot from that. And we'd been watching the play and seeing where we would go. We went with FutureLearn because we believe pedagogically they are, they are forging a new path in online learning. It's not simply yesterday's teaching model broadcast onto a platform. And that's casting no aspersions on what the others are doing. No. But, but FutureLearn, from what we see, is a, is a reimagination of on-campus learning rather than simply a replication. And I think that's the key. Mm. It's not just putting campus learning on TV sort of thing with quizzes and that sort of thing. It's socially engaged learning. So that's the reason we went with that one. The choice around what we did, well, we wanted just to push ourselves. Again, we could have, we have hundreds of degrees fully online, mm. as you know. We could have just pulled one off and tidied it up and put it there, if you like. We didn't want to do that either. We wanted to use this global exposure to test ourselves and prompt ourselves to do something different and imaginative. So instead of simply taking something off the shelf, I'll take a small course like Graduate Certificate Diabetes Education. It was already very good, very successful. It's taught completely in the cloud. There is no on-campus iteration. But instead of just tidying that up and putting it there, we actually reorganised it from scratch. Yep. We took the semester length experience and chunked it into two week blocks because we think somewhere down the path that's going to be the future of postgraduate um, retention mm. and learning because busy people can't necessarily do 10 weeks on the trot or 12 weeks on the trot. They can do a couple of weeks and then they might need to pause. So that was we're trying to future proof and think through that. But secondly, some of the other courses we chose have on-campus offerings, and that's the reality as well. So we needed to test ourselves. When you do take an existing course, reimagine it for the cloud first. What do you then do to engage your, your campus learners? And that's the challenge around what many people call the flipped classroom, for mm, example. Yeah. What do you do? Because there is a, this, um, the other ongoing challenge that very few people talk about, which is we all have these terrific campuses. Who comes on them? How do we know? Why are they coming? Why are they not coming, actually? Uh, if we are broadcasting everything, what is the incentive to come? Mm. We do know there's a that um, I, I think education is extremely social. Digital can be social, as we know. Look around, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you know, it's very social. It's a different kind of social, but there, there will all, I think education is a very human, social, interactive, connected industry, which will never, I hope, ever be replaced by robots. But there, we do need to give people a reason to make the trip to a physical site, whatever the site yep. is. So it has to be something different, hands-on, problem-solving, engaging in a real-world problem, I think. So it's all part of that mix. So we chose the courses to give us a chance to test ourselves, to try and reimagine the cloud-first learning experience, knowing that we had all of those problems to deal with. It would have been very easy just to pick six degrees, for example, that had no on-campus 
presence. Mm. That would have been simple. Mm. But we did it to learn and also to give ourselves the challenge of putting our learning on a global platform because all of the degrees that I talked about, they're already in our learning management system. But people from other jurisdictions and other countries don't necessarily come and find them, like yes. every university. Yep. There is a geographical pool with universities. Mm. We want to test ourselves to see what, it, what does it mean to go global with a digital offer. Mm. Your comment around the pedagogical underpinning and the way in which you want to test yourself uh, using a platform like, like FutureLens, I think really important. Um, we've both got experience, we've both been through that, that rodeo with online program management, and quite often those companies, those partnerships are based around taking existing programs, mm. developing them in an online format mm. as a new product, but typically then taking that 12 week block and making it six or seven weeks. Mm. So going back to your point about the future of professional mm. learning uh, and postgraduate learning, I wonder if what we're doing is actually setting those postgrads up for perhaps some failure because we're really putting them in a pressure cooker over that six to seven week period. Yep. Well, it's an interesting one. So mm. I think we're missing a trick on that one. And I don't say those people are doing the wrong thing, that may mm. work. But I think the fundamental underpinning thing is when a business goes digital, like, you know, a newspaper, you know, people used to file their stories by nine o'clock and that was the end of the day and then they'd wait and file their story the next day. But now it's 24-7, 365, they're filing all the time and so on. It's the same with education. So I think what we have to think about is not having those semesters at all. Mm. So that's where I was going with the two-week blocks because in many two-week online courses, think of Coursera and uh, edX, they have a lot of self-directed learning now. I can start any time. Yeah. That's something we started last year. We, we said, let's take a few postgraduate units that are already online and make them, why can't you start any day you like? Why do you have to start when we want you to? Why does it have to be seven weeks, six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks? Why can't you do it? Maybe and now every unit won't run that way or we'll have absolute chaos in the university. Mm. But if we do it in enough, then you can accelerate or get started at a time that suits you. I think that's what it has to be. It has to be 24-7, 365. There do have to be some perhaps points where if there is, for example, an, an invigilated exam, it's going to be on these 12 days during the year, pick one, that's going to be you. But, you know, people don't learn to a clock and a calendar. Mm. And really, when you think about it, Tony, we're organising online learning to suit timetabling on a physical campus that runs, you know, in these months and these months, so people can go home and get the wheat, you know, yeah. harvest the wheat and, yeah. and do those things when that's not what we need anymore, you know. Uh, you know, I can move my money around in the bank 24-7, 365. Why can't I learn that way? And I think that's what Mercs have done for us, is show us, start to pioneer in those things. Now, we haven't caught up because we are very big machines, but, and I'm talking about institutions now, but that's the challenge, is, mm. to, is to warrant learning and graduate people and assess their work and give them excellent feedback and coaching when they need it, not when we're, when we're used. Now, that's... Enormous challenges ahead to figure that out. We have industrial agreements. We don't plan to 
work our staff to death, that's mm. not going to work. We have to find new ways of doing this and it, it is painful mm. and it's challenging. But the, the point I guess, if I go back to where you started with these questions, what we've tried to do here at Deakin is try something small. See if it works, see if it actually solves the problem rather than just looks shiny and bright. Did it really solve the educational problem? Did it make it better for the student? Did it work for staff? And then get it, get the wrinkles out mm. and then maybe do it more broadly. So that's the way we try and do it. But I think that's what we have to do is try and solve educational challenges, not just think up new things. I might finish on this note. You know, people often ask about disruption and innovation. Doing them for the fun of doing them is just chaos, I think. If something works, why disrupt it? The only reason we should disrupt things is because we have a problem and we could do something better. So I guess that's what we've tried to do with all of the things we've talked about is think up a way to solve this knotty problem, make learning better for students and manageable for staff, uh, and, and kind of figure out which little levers you can change and pull to get the overall journey to be a lot more brilliant, if I mm. put it that way, brilliant education. Beverly, I have really enjoyed our conversation this morning. It's been um, quite expansive. It's gone in a couple of directions I, I hadn't anticipated. So I thank you for leading me there. Um, on behalf of our subscribers, please uh, thank Beverly for her time. Thank you. Thank